Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer of this podcast, Randy Kim. The end is almost near for season three, and it's been such a fun journey so far into this season. Thank you, everyone, for your continued support for the podcast. In the meantime, we are continuing the season three theme of Where Do We Stand? And I interview my fellow good friend, Maya Reddy, founder of Queer Asian Social Club. Maya is a queer South Asian American. She was a professional golfer and now currently in law school focusing on her work towards issues concerning LGBTQ plus athletes. She founded what was then the Gaijin Project and I was a guest on her show back in spring 2019. We immediately hit it off during that episode and to be quite frank she is one of the reasons why I started my podcast. The Queer Asian Social Club runs their own podcast merchandise line, a new zine, and a social media platform talking about intersectional queer, trans, Asian-American, Asian diaspora identities. In this episode, we talk more about Queer Asian Social Club, the anti-Asian and anti-Black racism and colorism issues in our API community. Listen to this episode for more, and don't forget to follow Queer Asian Social Club on social media. Also, Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. Hi, everyone. So today I am joined with just an amazing friend of mine who actually inspired me to start my own podcast. So uh, I am here to introduce Maya Reddy. And before I bring her in, I want to give you a quick intro of who she is. So Maya Reddy is a queer South Asian, former professional golfer, LGBTQ plus athlete activist, athlete ally ambassador, founder of the Queer Asian Social Club and a Toe Public Interest Scholar in the University of Pennsylvania Law School Class of 2022. She was a three-time NCAA All-American and gained status on the Symmetric Tour before having to take a step back from the sport due to its exclusive culture and the many harmful experiences she endured as a result of that culture. Maya focused her pain in fighting for and becoming an advocate for LGBTQ plus inclusive policies in sports and decided to pursue a law degree to strengthen her work in, ex- in ex- inclusive policy formation, advocacy and litigation defending trans and queer athletes. So I'm so happy to have you on today, Maya. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah, it's a weird time that we're living in, but uh, I'm buying a lot of plants, so that's kind of <laughs> helping a it's, lot. It's a little therapeutic, I can imagine. And <clears throat> yeah, and just looking at your background here, it's it's immense. I mean, it feels like you are on a roll right now, but it's also, you know, being an athlete, uh, hosting your own podcast. Uh, doing the work with Queer Asian Social Club and going to law school uh, right now. So I feel like there's so much happening in this whirlwind that you are going through. And how are you feeling presently in terms of where you are um, 
focusing on in terms of law school and, and how this 2020 year has been for you in, in terms of your own work? Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's kind of been a whirlwind. And I think that, you know, 2020 has really lent itself to being, um, I think great is probably the wrong adjective, but we're living in a time where a lot of the activism work that both of us are really passionate about has become uh, more front and center. Uh, people are paying attention more to both queer issues and um, issues facing communities of color, especially um, you know our Black uh, siblings. And I think that's really great in that we're getting a lot of attention you know like people are actually paying attention to these issues and you know unlike in previous moments where sometimes it can feel and i think especially um in appy med asian communities where it feels like we have to fight for our issues to kind of be recognized or for us to be known um in a greater kind of societal way um now this moment kind of feels like we are able to have these conversations um, across the board with people within our communities, uh, people outside of our communities. And I think, um, you know, for myself, it feels really, uh, <laughs> empowering is also not the right uh, word here, but I think um, really inspiring, like to keep the momentum going. And I feel, you know, it's really an interesting time to be in law school. Uh, I think, you know, for anybody who has been in law school during the Trump administration, it has been kind of a exercise of laws or a social construct almost. Um, with, you know, a lot of existential crises there, uh, especially when it comes to constitutional law or administrative law. Um, but I think that for myself, it's only kind of emphasize the importance of having um, you know marginalized voices within the legal profession and having you know the perspectives of people of color of queer folks um, of essentially non uh, cisgender white men um, is incredibly important because when we have these voices in a you know a profession that's as influential in our society and the framework of our society then we're we have a higher likelihood of seeing you know that framework change to where it um is benefiting us instead of continuing to marginalize us as you know many of us are seeing almost every single day to the point of complete frustration and depression um so in that respect, I think I, I felt very lucky um, to be able to be in the position that I'm in, um, to, you know, be at an Ivy League institution and, and know what that kind of name brand recognition means for my career and recognizing that, like, it doesn't matter. I mean, whether or not somebody is going to law school at, like, this an Ivy League institution, just by virtue of being in the profession, right? Like you have this opportunity to use that privilege, that power for good. Um, and it, I feel very lucky to have that kind of legal background in addition, um, or forming that legal background in addition to uh, the work that I've 
been able to do with Queer Asian Social Club and then also um, with athlete activism as well. Um, so I, I think that was just a very long-winded answer to say that very, very strange times that we're living in. Um, and I think that we are seeing some incredible movements gain a lot of traction and attention in the mainstream in ways that um, perhaps they haven't always been um, in the past. And I think that that is something that's really, really important. And I think it's really great um, that, you know, in the age of social media, we get to hear even more voices um, from all of these different perspectives uh, talking about our experiences and, and what we want to do, what we're fighting for, and that we're all fighting kind of like the same fight together. I think like in the past four years, uh, with the Trump administration continuing to escalate uh, many harmful policies, and you can pick any one of them, and it's, it's an onslaught uh, that has been happening that pushes activists, uh, organiza nonprofit organizations, grassroots groups to work hand in hand to resist against what is happening within the Trump administration. And we're seeing, as you just pointed out, the number of groups that have been cropping up. You see groups on Facebook, Instagram accounts that start to focus on stories. Uh, they start to focus on resource sharing, uh, opportunities to help those who are marginalized that are in danger of being incarcerated and deported get access to legal uh, organizations that have their own uh, social media accounts. So we're seeing more of this happening. I think it's also uh, one of the beauties of movements that when you see history repeating itself, so does resistance, right? And, and one of the work that, uh, that you have been doing is the Queer Asian Social Club. It was formerly known as the Gaijin Project back in 2018. I believe it was started during a convention. And I remembered, you know, going through my Instagram account and I sometimes hashtag Gaijin, you know, especially if I do like my own selfie or what have you. And then I came across the t-shirts saying Gaijin. And then I was very curious to know where it came from. So it came from what was done, the Gaijin Project. And I got a chance to uh, take a quick look at it. It was more than just the merchandise line. It was, you know, different resources, stories through your social media account, and also a podcast. And listening to the podcast, I it was very intersectional. Uh, and I was looking to see who was running the account. And it was a person named Maya Reddy, who is a queer South Asian American person. And when we think of Gaijin, the first thought that comes to my mind is assist East Asian queer male, right? And, and I wanted to know what led to the beginning of this account of what was done the Gaijin Project, which is now Queer Asian Social Club. And I also want to say that you had me on as a guest and it was yeah. through that experience <laughs> that I was so blown away by our conversation. I really enjoyed how deep and intersectional our conversation became during this, uh, during this uh, episode that 
I thought about, well, you know, I got to think about an independent project because when I was working with Ada Chang after Talk Story, she's like, I need you to start doing an independent project. I'm going to challenge you to do this. And I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't want to do a storytelling show. I don't know if I want to, you know, write my own book. I don't know if I'm ready for any of those things. But then the podcast idea started coming up right after I had done that episode with you. And almost a year later, you know, for this past year, I have been doing the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. So I got to thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping to inspire this idea and the fact that it was because of your work that you have pushed uh, other folks to, to take action, to find their own platforms. So, but yes. Uh, I <laughs> Randy, I, I love you so much. And uh, I, I mean, I, it means the world that, like, in some small way, um, you know, the Gaijin Project, uh, the podcast was able to kind of help launch the Bon Me. Um, oh, no, I forgot the name bon of your Me podcast. Chronicles, yeah. Chronicles. Bon Me, I was going to say podcast, but um, the Bon Me Chronicles, because, I mean, I think the work that you're doing is absolutely incredible, and you're... I, I was telling you this when we first called a, a couple weeks ago, but, you know, you are also doing this incredible job with talking to so many really influential folks within our community who are, you know, from all different walks of life. And I think that now, because of, you know, podcasts are so easy to make um, and so accessible in a lot of ways, uh, we're in this moment where so many Asian stories are being able to be not just told but heard and like the diversity of all of those experiences and perspectives I think is just incredibly valuable and so impactful um, especially when you know our communities haven't always had um, you know very kind of like set recorded histories, at least like, you know, especially in the United States, like our stories are not always told kind of in our own voices. And to all of that to say, like, I, I am really, really honored to be on your podcast. And I, I think that the work that you're doing is absolutely amazing. Um, and I also have to say that our conversation, uh, which what was like a year or so ago? year plus ago, I think it was like, April, April of 2019. Yeah. Yeah, a little over, yeah, over a year ago. Um, no, I, it was really amazing to talk to you. It's been amazing to get to know you because, you know, I'm, I grew up in a South Asian bubble, like I'm from India. So, um, you know, I kind of know Indian culture, like I know my family's culture. Um, and I know our stories to a certain extent, but again, it's like from my family's perspective. And I think it's really important um, to understand. And this is kind of like the whole impetus behind Queers and Social Club is that we are from this huge ass continent with so many different countries, so many different cultures, so many different languages. Um, and at the same time, for LGBTQ um, Appy Med folks, there is a lot of um, shared experiences that I think is really, really important to highlight. Like, I, I think it's just so valuable to be like, hey, like, 
totally like let's acknowledge and celebrate the differences between our cultures and take kind of like refuge almost in the shared experiences because we're not alone and it being able to talk to you and kind of hear about your experiences kind of like your perspective what your identities um it was just amazing um and i think twofold because Southeast Asian communities, especially in the United States, aren't given a lot of space um, to just a lot of space, period. And so often all AFIMED folks are just like lumped into the model minority, which erases like all of these really, really important aspects of um, cultural identities and just people. Like it just erases people. And for me like somebody who again like grew up kind of like in the south asian bubble of my family um i truly didn't really know much about um you know southeast asian history like um truly anything i think i the most that i really knew kind of prior to starting queer asian social club um about southeast asian cultures is like the war in Vietnam, right? And like, because that's what you learn about in the United States. And it's this very kind of imper American imperialistic look at an entire um, section of the world that's incredibly, you know, like not just erasing or yeah, erasing, but also infantilizing and fetishizing, just like all of these kind of like really shitty, um, kind of perspectives that we learn through American imperialism. And it was so amazing. It has been really incredible getting to talk to so many folks, like including yourself from around the continent of Asia, um, to hear about your perspectives and hear about your, you know, like what your lives have been like in the United States, like what your cultural backgrounds are kind of like, and also, connecting over the fact um, that there are, I mean, we always joke at the Queer Asian Social Club, we're like, what is the one uniting aspect of all AppyMed cultures? And it's rice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so we always like lean into the rice and we lean into the fact that um, there are no shoes allowed in the house. Um, but I don't know, I, I feel like it's really hard to eloquently put into words how like, heart filling it is to be able to talk to folks like you who are like also incredibly like are able to be incredibly vulnerable who have done a lot of work um in this space of activism i mean like your work with the museum like you, you and your work storytelling um it's incredibly powerful and um it has been amazing to kind of just know you and learn from you and i think that act for any activism like we as activists only become stronger and and better and more effective the more we just kind of like work together as a team and like championing champion each other's stories and perspectives and it's been truly an honor to get to know both you and ada and and so many of the other folks that um you know you've introduced me to that i've um you know had the really incredible honor to meet kind of like through queer region social club because i mean like you had asked earlier kind of what started uh queer region social club um and 
really, I mean, maybe I should have led with this, but um, it was because I, I didn't know where my community was. Like as a queer woman, I was like, okay, like I have seen the L word. Like I, you know, I know what queer or I know what queer women are supposed to look like according to the L word, which is truly so problematic in every way. Um, but also very influential and I'm glad that it exists because it, it did do a lot for, you know, like the queer femme community at, you know, an important time when we weren't talking, when we weren't visible and when we weren't talking kind of like about queerness in the ways that we really are able to today in the mainstream. Um, so I hate but love the L word. I don't know, complicated relationship with the L word. Um, but I, so I kind of like saw that and I was like, okay, so like I, when I turn 21, like I'll be able to go to the gay bars and like, I'll be able to kind of like meet women and you know, like I'm gonna have this like cabal of like queer femme friends in Los Angeles that go to coffee shops. Um, but then, you know, like I'm also South Asian, I'm a Desi and I, that complicated things where it was just like, okay, like I know where like my queer femme part fits in, but then I'm also not sure how like my Desi part fits into the queer femme identity. And then on top of that, it's like, okay, so when I look at um, spaces for South Asians, right? Those are Asian spaces. And, but still, even though I'm Asian, the majority of those spaces tended to be primarily um, you know, dominated by East Asian folks, which isn't a bad thing. Like, I think that's amazing that there are spaces for our community. And at the same time, because I never saw people who looked like myself in those spaces, um, it automatically kind of signaled to me, oh, this isn't an Asian space per se, as much as it is primarily an East Asian space. And because I saw so many Asian spaces that became primarily East Asian spaces, I got really, really confused. I remember graduating from college, finally like out on my own, you know, like a baby queer, trying to figure things out, um, a little bit slutty, probably drunk more than I should have been, um, but like really, really excited to kind of like get to explore myself like on my own in the real world. Um, and and then, you know, it hit me that like, I didn't know what space I belonged in. It was like, I was living in LA at the time. And I think most people who live in LA, most queer people who live in LA can tell you that um, West Hollywood is truly for white cis gay men and not really um, other queer folks. Uh, and that was something that I struggled with a lot because I was like, it's West Hollywood, it's the neighborhood. Like I'm supposed to like, be able to find people that look like me and like all of these yeah. things sadly unfortunately it's like that pretty much in every big city i mean chicago boys yeah. town oh yeah is, well the word boys town clearly is not for trans or women queer women and non-cis white uh folks right so yeah. and even that's getting very gentrified i mean andersonville is also very gentrified. I mean, there's only older queer white folks that live there. So like any any of the more prominent LGBTQ friendly neighborhood is usually very dominated by 
cis white men. Yeah, and, and um, that yeah. that was like really hard for me. Like at first it wasn't, again, because I was probably drunk more than I should have been. Um, but then, you know, like it quickly, it's like that thing when you're living on your own as a young adult in your 20s and you're not in college, so you don't have like this safety net of um, your friends, like you don't have like the dorm rooms, you don't have your like group of friends there, right? And so I was all by myself and I was like, I'm so desperately looking for community because like I, I am a baby queer. Like I want to know what it's like. I want to feel like I belong. I want to know that my basic identity isn't in conflict with my queer identity. Um, and yet I couldn't find those spaces. Like I, when I went into queer spaces, um, they were predominantly white and I was just like, okay, I feel like I can feel desirability politics in play here. It's like, I was not getting hit on, but my white friends got hit on. That was like such a blow to my ego um, and my heart, honestly. Um, and then when I wanted to go into Asian spaces, uh, not only were they predominantly um, East Asian spaces, but they also didn't have um, space for, you know, like queerness didn't seem, like it felt like I had to go back into the closet to be in an Asian mm -hmm. space. And then I, I also was just like, okay, like, you know, queer people of color exist. Like, <laughs> of course we exist. And so I tried to, to find queer POC spaces to kind of find my people, right? To kind of like bridge the gap. And, you know, that I also couldn't find belonging there because unfortunately, when we think of POC, especially in the United States, not always are Asian Americans uh, considered POC because of, you know, like the model minority myth and uh, the fact that, you know, for a lot of reasons, our communities have leaned into white adjacency, um, some bad, a lot of them because of self-preservation, which I have a lot of compassion for, um, not to excuse it, but kind of like understanding it. And so, in those queer POC spaces, I felt like I was taking up space from, you know, my Black siblings, from Indigenous siblings, and my Latinx siblings in a way that was really confusing and just only compounded, like, how, like, all of the tensions of my identities. So, um, you know, I was just essentially desperately looking for a space to be queer and Asian and for that to be okay and for you know, that queer Asian space to include the entire, you know, like people who looked like all of the different cultures that we have in the continent of Asia. So like brown Asians, um, you know, like indigenous populations um, throughout the continent of Asia, uh, from this, the Western side to the, east, you know, like through the whole gamut. And that's kind of like what the impetus for Queer Asian Social Club was, it was trying to create a space where, um, you know, our community could just exist, where we can be represented, where our stories can be told, because, you know, like the core tenet of um, Queer Asian Social Club is, you know, empowering community through visibility. And for me, when I was trying to look for my community, like, I didn't know where that community was, because you know, like Asians aren't well represented in the media, let alone queer Asians. So it was just like, where the hell am I going to find this space? Um, and so in creating Queer Asian Social Club, it was with an eye on the fact that 
you really can't be what you can't see. And there are a lot of incredible queer Asian organizations that have been doing work for years. And what we really wanted to do with Queer Asian Social Club is kind of just, you know, work together and like highlight the work that people are already doing and showing kind of um, our community that our community exists out there that like, even though it's not always seen in ways that, um, you know, like white queer femmes get to see themselves on the L word, like we exist. And so let's use, um, you know, like the visibility platforms of social media to highlight the really incredible work that organizations in New York are doing, that organizations in Chicago are doing, um, and to really give a space for not only our stories to be told, but for them to be heard and for us to see ourselves and kind of like build that community and that, um, you know, like belongingness. And I mean, it's been definitely started off as a selfish endeavor of me, like desperately wanting to find community and people who like see me and know me. And I mean, it's become something that I'm so immensely grateful. For. Like it, I cannot, I think adequately expressed how important it has been to my own identity and how much like meeting folks like you and just being able to be in a space where we can be queer and Asian like I I think I'm sure like you probably have similar feelings of like it's unquantifiable like it, it's truly like you are seen and you're known and I mean like for example the other day um, a friend of mine who's also queer and South Asian we went on a like a long day of running errands, um, which included going grocery shopping and kind of in the middle of it, both of us were just like, we really want chili crisp. So we're like, okay, we got to go to the, like um, H Mart is where we went. Um, and even though like my friend and I are both South Asian, it was kind of like this moment where we stepped into H Mart and we're like, oh, this is the cultural reset that we needed. Like these are kind of like, I don't, it, it's hard to explain, but it's like you feel at home when you're around other Asian folks, no matter what culture they're from, because it's like, oh yeah, like, of course we're going to put MSG in our food. Of course we're going to buy like the biggest bag of shrimp chips. Like, of course, like we're going to, you know, like do all of these things, be really, really specific about the tea that we're drinking, like all of this stuff. And it just felt like you're known, like you're known. You don't have to explain your cultural habits. You don't have to like fight to exist almost um and then after we went to h mart we went to the local like indian um grocery store um which was also really fun because you know like my friend is um from northern india and i'm from southern india and we got to like instantly by the way that we gravitated to different snacks we were like oh like you can tell like how we're you know we grew up because of the types of snacks we choose um it's a very long-winded answer but I, I, it was in that moment and I keep thinking about it, you know, that was Saturday and I keep thinking about how, how in immensely kind of like fulfilling and important it is to share space with people who get you, who like understand and you have that shorthand. So you don't have to be like, take your shoes off in the house, essentially, which is like a really basic thing. But like when I have my white friends come over I'm always like take your shoes off who raised you or like when you're watching tv and like um you know like non-asian characters have their shoes on the bed I'm like 
literally what the fuck is wrong with you like also it's covid times like nobody should be wearing shoes in the house I mean, where the where have those shoes been i mean that's where the first thing been? i mean did you not go to a public bathroom like you know along the way right? there too <laughs> um but wow. yeah no i mean like that's that's kind of it like queer asian social club was just about continuing to create space um for happy med folks and and we're really you know what we really try to emphasize is that it's for the entire continent of asia like you know like asian pacific islander middle eastern they see like all of those identities are equally as valid under the umbrella of asia and i think it's really important to celebrate that and like um show that and create that visibility in a way that is by no means lumping us all together but is celebrating the fact that we have this shared um this shared cultural background in a lot of ways as well as celebrating the differences amongst us um and i think that it's it's been really amazing because it's like i i learned so much from you know other south asian people i learned so much um you know from like for instance you and it's not just about like our our cultural backgrounds but it's also like how does our cultural backgrounds influence the way we understand our queerness or our experiences as queer and trans folks um and yeah i don't know it's just really special and i have so many yeah. words that i could say about creation social club but um i i feel really grateful that you know this is a thing that kind of has happened and this is how my life has gone so far yeah i i just want to say from the bottom of my heart thank you for creating this space because you know the queer asian social club and i'm a huge fan of the space that you're creating and empowering folks of all across the spectrum of the api apimed identities right and and also important to point out intersectionality into this because this is a very important part of that discussion because as i was also growing up just like you i grew up in a mostly white suburban neighborhood and my relationship with the southeast asian community being both viet and Khmer, was a very complicated it was a very complicated relationship, let's put it that way, especially if one doesn't speak the language very well, uh, when you aren't getting the kind of grades, good grades that my dad's friends, family members were getting. Uh, it was hard. And, you know, growing up in my own 20s like you was very toxic for me in my early 20s because when my best friend came out as gay, I struggled with it because I grew up in an environment where the white community that I was growing up in and also my family's community that I grew up in as well were very homophobic. And I kept thinking to myself for a long time that I never felt normal in an Asian body, let alone in a queer body. So I felt like I was trying to suppress that or trying to um, normalize myself. And that created all this internalized homophobia within myself. And I remember going to Boys Town and you know, going into the clubs and I felt resentful towards my best friend who's white. And I felt so angry at him when he had his boyfriend with him too. And and I'm thinking to myself, am I not desirable to anyone? And and you brought and you that bring is, this up. Yeah. And I remember just having outbursts. Like on Saturday nights with him, I was like, 
F you. It's like, you know, you know, I, I like, you know, you're lucky, you're privileged, and I would just go off and it would be dramatic. And I think it just, and I did not know where it was coming from, but I think years down the road, I look back and I'm like, where can I go to? Uh, because the queer space never felt like it was for me, right? And then, you know, in the Southeast Asian community spaces, I felt like I was never really part of their spaces because I'm mixed, I can't speak the language, I did not, I was growing up in a white suburban neighborhood, so I felt like I was whitewashed. So I felt like, where the hell do I belong in all of this? Yeah. Uh, and then I think when I went to Korea for like a few years teaching English, while I was happy to be around uh, around Korean folks and Asian expats, you know, whether, I mean, some of them were Hmong, some of them were um, Korean American, Vietnamese Americans, or Vietnamese Australians and, and Asians of the diaspora, let's put it that way. Um, it was like my first time being around that community, but Korea was a very homophobic, I mean, it still is to, to an extent, but back then, I really couldn't openly say that I was queer, right? And so teaching at an all boys middle school, I had to really shut that one down completely. So I think as I was coming out of the closet before I went to Korea, I felt like I put myself right back in for another few years. And it wasn't until I came back to Chicago that I had to like put the reset buttons like, look, I'm almost 30 years old. I'm getting really sick and tired of having to figure out where I belong in this. And I found I2I, which is an Asian or APIA LGBTQQIA group. And that, you know, experience really saved me. It saved me further years of complications, right? It saved me years of, of continuing self-hatred of myself and this frustration I had towards all parts of my communities, right? So, you know, I credit them for helping me to affirm my, all of my identities. And that was very important. I think what you're doing with Creation Social Club does continue that work. It, it, it's about making sure that we all count in this, that, you know, as I always say, the Asian experience is not some monolithic experience. It's not a single narrative. These are so many different layers, whether you're disabled, whether you're adopted, whether you're trans, non-binary, queer, mixed. I mean, there's so many different stories within these spectrums that you can't just say all Asians think like this, all Asians act like this. There's so many different layers of that experience that we have yet to uncover, but we're just, as I would hope to uncover uh, many of them as it starts to open up. And I'm hoping that we get to see more of that continue to happen and change the way we talk about OpiMed, APIA communities uh, moving forward. So, yeah. yeah. I also, I mean, like, I, I do want to say that, like, something that for Queers and Social Club, like, we're not trying to, like, reinvent the wheel. Like, so much of what we try to do is celebrate and uplift um, the voices of folks and organizations who have been doing this work way longer than we have um, in a way. Cause like, I know for me, I grew up, like Randy was saying, like um, in this predominantly white Northern California town, like at the tip of <laughs> California. Um, and, you know, like I didn't really hear 
like I, I just didn't know if queer um, Asian organizations existed. Like I didn't really know um, who I would go to or even if those spaces existed. And like that still was true, like no matter where I lived in California. Um, but when I, you know, like Queer Asian Social Club was founded, it's like I was introduced to all of these incredible organizations that are already doing this work, like kind of around the country. And, you know, it kind of the fact that even though I was in California, which, you know, there are pretty large, uh, you know, AppyMed populations in California, even though I was in there, right, like I grew up in that state. Um, I still didn't have access to these, like I didn't hear about NCAPIA until a couple years ago. Like I, I wasn't aware of these organizations. And so for me, it was just kind of like, holy shit, these guys are doing like incredible stuff already. If I'm somebody who has lived, you know, up and down the state of California and, you know, have considered myself pretty plugged into, into the like queer kind of world, um, if I haven't really heard about these organizations, then like there has to be other folks that aren't getting access to this incredible work and these incredible people um, like me. And so for us, it's just kind of like, yeah, we're another organization kind of getting thrown into the mix, but we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We just want to, you know, show folks that like, these communities exist like we exist there's work that has been do, you know being done and I think I don't know I feel like this is a conversation that you and I have had before where there's kind of this power in uncovering our histories and kind of like seeing like oh we've been here like I know for me when I look at um Hinduism uh I'm always just like oh yeah Hinduism is like really fucking queer and like when that kind of like unlocked for me I was just like oh this is really empowering and then when I hear about um you know queer api mad trailblazers or activists who have been doing this work for so long you know like I, I think a lot about um the conversation that I had with Ada where I was just like it just feels like oh like I don't feel so alone like I have these elders like I have these people to kind of like look to as like a, a roadmap it's like the the representation thing it's like you don't feel alone it's like oh like this is what I can be this is like what I can be doing like what do we as like the next generation like what can we do to continue this work going forward and create you know keep building off of that um so I mean all of that to say I'm like creation social club is truly endlessly inspired by the folks who have come before us and the folks who are you know like you know still doing this work alongside of us. Yeah, and also I was wondering if we could talk about your team on Queer Asian Social Club and yeah. and what projects have you currently been working on, but also uh, before we even, uh, before I even dive further, let's talk about that part and then, you know, well, let's uh, go further. Yeah, um, so right now um, our team, uh, our core team, there are three of us, it's myself, uh, Jamie Liu, and Leonard Alyasha and um, just two incredible people that I'm, I'm so lucky to work with. Um, it's been really nice actually recently because something that we've been really trying to prioritize is all of our mental health. Um, so we're, we're all very, it's just a really nice team to be a part of where um, 
you know, we're constantly checking in and making sure that we're working within our capacities that, you know, like things are authentic to who we are and what we believe in. Um, and then also like giving space for each one of us to kind of like pursue projects that like really excite us um, because, you know, Queer Asian Social Club really is a facet of the three of us. Um, and yeah, um, Leonard, uh, they are a Middle Eastern drag performer who goes by uh, the drag name of Satana the Queen. Um, absolutely wonderful. I love them so much. Um, and they kind of like handle a lot of our uh, social media and kind of like marketing, which is a weird thing to say in activism, but like trying to figure out like how we can grow in ways that allow folks to kind of like know us and, and find, you know, our little community that we're trying to foster. Um, and then Jamie actually is kind of like uh, the queen of Queries and Social Clubs. She actually was the one who started the event series that we did when it was okay to kind of like meet in person, of course. Um, and she, she's absolutely fantastic. She's a creative director, um, absolutely talented. She designed our pride shirts, um, which, you know, like the design, um, if people are kind of not familiar with it is, uh, it says pride. Um, in as many AppyMed languages as we could get kind of um, reliable enough translations from, um, which I which thought- Which is hard to do. Yeah, that's- Oh my God, it's so do, hard. Yeah. Especially because like, you know, like the dialects within that. So it's like, you can ask one person, like for instance, I could ask my mom what pride means in Hindi and then somebody else could just be like, oh, wait, that's wrong. Um, yeah. But, uh, it, 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 I mean, like, Jamie is wonderful, um, and I don't know, like, I mean, we all kind of, like, have our own roles, but then at the same time, we're all just completely doing it all together, and it, it's kind of, like, all hands on deck, which feels really special and wonderful, um, but the current project that we're working on right now, which uh, I think will be launching around the time that this episode releases, um, but you know, like with the changing times with COVID and lockdown and everything, um, we have been trying to figure out how to create community because we can't throw events. Um, so kind of what that's formed um, has been this brilliant idea by Jamie to create an online zine uh, for Queer Asian Social Club. Uh, so it's going to be called Queer Asian Social Club Presents Disorient. Um, and the idea is that we're going to have this online zine format where folks can submit truly anything like we're we're truly just like we want this to kind of be just another space where we can kind of compile queer asian culture and like whatever that means um so from art pieces to jamie is going to be writing this incredible um think piece on uh k-pop and queerness and queer shipping um, you know, another one of uh, our contributors is planning on writing a piece on how Lane Kim from Gilmore Girls is truly a queer Asian icon because I mean, and also she was treated dirty in Gilmore Girls, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, and then um, we have this incredible sex, sex educator um, and their uh, handle on Instagram is at what the slut. Um, and they are doing this interview with a few um, Asian doms in New York 
talking mm -hmm. about, um, you know, sex work and then the intersection of being a sex worker with um, Asian femme fetishization and like what that means. And like, just in general, this like very honest um, conversation about sexuality, which doesn't always happen in, you know, either the queer community or the Appymed community. Um, but yeah, we're like really, really excited. And, you know, total, Jamie's kind of like whole thought process behind this was like, we just want to be able to have our voices and our perspectives told and like a space where we can make a video or a TikTok about our experiences, or we could write like a really long essay about the geography of Avatar, the last airbender universe, or, you know, like we can have interviews with, um, you know, folks like yourself or other queer Appymad folks um, who are doing incredible things, or they don't even have to be doing like incredible things. It's just like getting to talk to people. Um, so that's something that we're incredibly excited about. And, you know, Randy had mentioned merch kind of earlier. Um, our, our plan with merch moving forward is um, with each zine release, we want to create a piece of merch that is going to be in line with whatever the theme of the zine is that, that quarter or whatever, um, but is also going to be, um, you know, creating charitable donations for a queer POC organization as well. Um, because, you know, it's really, really important to us to not only lift uplift our own community or queer Epimed community, but also to like continue to uplift like, you know, our POC um, siblings um, and, and doing whatever we can to, you know, like empower each other and, and lift up each other. And this year has been obviously a challenge for the APIA Opimed communities here in the wake of COVID-19 and the anti-Asian racism that have been exploding this year. And I wonder about the work that you're doing to address the anti-Asian racism, but also more recently with the anti-Black racism issues that are ongoing. I know uh, with Queer Asian Social Club during the time of the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery murders, you have been posting or sharing uh, translations that another uh, Instagram account, I can't remember the name of it. it Letters for me. Black Lives. Letters for Black Lives, correct. And you know, sharing resources, the translation uh, letters to our communities because language is a barrier within our own communities in terms of addressing political issues and very important human rights issues such as anti-Black racism. How do we address anti-Blackness, colorism in our own communities? And part of that the struggle of having that conversation is language issues, educational background. I mean, there's there are a number of barriers that uh, affect our ability to have these constructive discussions and to help dismantle the white supremacy that holds our community hostage. So with Queer Asian Social Club for this year, I know it's been a really heavy year in terms of having to address all of these issues with anti-Asian racism to uh, anti-Black racism and the upcoming presidential election. I would like to get a sense of what that process has been like and the responsibility that you have with this platform to address these issues and to help uplift our communities and also to work with black and brown 
uh, communities who are targeted? Yeah, I mean, it's been hard. Um, I mean, it's complicated, right? Because being Asian in the United States um, carries the the unfortunate weight of the model minority and this perception that this perception of white adjacency, I think, is the best way to describe it. Um, and so when it comes to issues about race, it feels incredibly difficult to discuss anti-Asian racism because of the that model minority assumption. Because, I mean, I think John Cho's uh, op-ed in the LA Times put it really, really perfectly that like, at once this hatred and anti-Asian sentiment towards our communities um, is really, really harmful and has been, you know, lethal in very many instances. Um, and at the same time, because of this kind of like model minority assumption, um, it's also viewed as like racism light. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sure that you, we could go down a, um, a full rabbit hole about where that comes from and kind of like the perception of uh, Asian Americans uh, influenced by American imperialism, the various wars that we've been in and all of that. Um, but, you know, like it, it's, I don't know, just to, to steal John Cho's words, you know, like anti-Asian sentiment is very often viewed as racism light. So it feels really, really difficult to start to have these conversations because when you grow up in the United States, um, that just becomes in, like internalized in a way. Um, so, I mean, speaking for myself, like I'm so good at gaslighting racial issues to myself. Like I, you know, when I was playing golf professionally, I endured a lot of instances of racism um, because I'm brown, because, uh, you know, like my family, um, looks uh, Middle Eastern in the sense that racist people cannot tell the difference between types of browns. So they're just like, you're a brown? Okay, like we're just gonna hate on you. Um, and that was really hard because I was just like, okay, this is difficult and I'm like, this is very explicitly racist and why is it that these people are feeling so comfortable saying this shit to me? Um, however, when it comes to my Latinx siblings and my Black siblings, um, there is more caution around the language usage. Um, so when we've been talking about anti-Asian racism, uh, especially in the, the wake of COVID, it's felt really complicated because it's like, you know, that internalized struggle of like, is this real? Like, is this important enough to talk about? And then you have like this dominant discourse in the United States that paints race as literally a black and white issue. And you're, it's, you're kind of left in this space where it's like, talking about anti-Asian racism is really, really important. I mean, talking about racism at all is incredibly important because that's like kind of the base level of how we defeat it essentially. And um, because of like the black and white way that we look at race, um, it sometimes feels like to, to raise your hand and be like, okay, and also there are, are these rising hate crimes against Asian Americans um, without that being perceived as, um, 
you know, like invalidating the experiences of our Black siblings, of trying to equate our experiences to, you know, like the centuries long uh, uh, trauma that uh, Black Americans and Indigenous people um, have faced in this country. Um, and so that's kind of been like a, it's difficult. I don't know. I, I think I, I said a lot of words there, uh, but at, at kind of like the point that I wanted to make, it, it, it feels really difficult. And, you know, like this past year in law school, I, I took constitutional law um, as all one else have to. And I remember kind of like seeing that, that black white paradigm that has kind of grown into a paradigm that almost supports white supremacist ideologies in the sense that if we are saying that race is only black or white, then it makes it very easy to use non-black POC groups as a wedge in between um, black and white issues, as we see with um, the affirmative action cases in Harvard with Asian Americans. Um, so, you know, I, I went down this whole rabbit hole kind of like venting to my professor about like, hey, like, why isn't it that we're able to also understand that racism in any form is really bad and should be protected, you know, like we should be protected it and that racism is valid, period. You know, that's a weird way of saying that, but um, experiences of racism are valid. Like those experiences are valid, whether or not they look exactly like um, the horrific um, acts of racism that we see against and that we have seen against our black siblings for centuries. Um, and I don't know, it, it's, it's a really, really complicated and messy issue. And it's something that we've been at Creation Social Club have been really trying to navigate and, and really explicitly say like, hey, what we're trying to do at the end of the day is dismantle white supremacy and, you know, like have Black Lives Matter so that everybody's lives matter because they don't matter right now. And while we are doing that work and supporting wholeheartedly Black Lives Matter and especially our Black trans siblings, there is also space for Med folks to acknowledge, you know, similarly, centuries-long um, xenophobic and discriminatory sentiment towards our communities. Um, and, you know, like, I think it's really difficult, <laughs> all of that to say, I think it's difficult and it's hard, um, especially, I mean, I, I think we see a lot of conversations now discussing about how you grow up in America and you already are internalized, you kind of like are socialized in a society that is inherently racist. And so it's a lot of work, a lot of internal work um, with our team and with the content that we're putting out to really kind of show and, and, and let folks know that it's not like an either or situation with racism. It's black folks have been being murdered for no fucking reason by the cops for way too long. And, um, you know, Med folks have also endured a lot of xenophobic um, discriminatory sentiment that stems from like scapegoating. Um, and 9 those 9 two 11. things- yeah, 9-11. Yeah. Because I you know like when we talk about anti-Asian racism and COVID-19, 
it doesn't necessarily affect the South Asian community, but the anti-Asian racism has always existed against yeah. the South Asian community, especially in light of 9-11 and during the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and where people were killed and being mistaken for Muslim. And this is still an ongoing issue, even yeah. when COVID-19 has put a lot of attention towards East Asians and East Asian passing folks. But we're seeing, we still see that too. And I think this is uh, an area that continues to to uh, push for deeper discussions. How do we address this as a collective community? How do we address the issues of anti-Black racism, why Black Lives Matter is very important to the liberation for our communities as well. It's tied to the liberation yeah. to our communities, right? And I think, I think a lot about how, so something that was, I, I'm sure somebody who has been in the legal profession much longer than I have can speak a little bit more eloquently on this, but um, I remember reading about kind of uh, affirmative action and equal protection and how in a lot of those cases, um, the ways in which the court have understood racism or discrimination has really been rooted in understandings of um, both uh, slavery as well as the Jim Crow era um, and what discrimination looked like in those two points of American history. And of course, like discrimination still looks like that to an alarmingly exact extent, um, especially for the Black community, which is just very annoying. People should read history books and pay attention. Um, but when I was reading that, it, it it's difficult because you see the court trying to map on all of these instances of discrimination onto this very specific idea of what racism looks like. Um, and that's not always the case. Like, I mean, I, I think both of us could speak a lot about how discrimination looks like so many different things. And, and in that very sense, it's really nefarious because you just, you, you don't know what's coming and then it hits you and you're like, what happened? And it's confusing, it's disorienting, it's, it's all, it's hurtful. Um, and it can be incredibly violent and lethal in so many different ways. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always neatly map onto um, specific ideas of discrimination um, from the Jim Crow era, from uh, the slavery era. Um, and I think that makes things a little bit difficult because we're grow we grow up thinking like, oh, discrimination looks like this very specific thing. Um, and then when we face discrimination that doesn't look like that thing, but it still hurts, and you, you feel it in your gut and you're like, oh, that's because of how I looked like, or that's because of some part of my identity and that was wrong. Um, it becomes confusing because it doesn't neatly map on to this kind of expectation of discrimination or racism that like, you know, we think it should. Um, and I think, I think trying to challenge that and which I, you know, I think is definitely happening right now. Um, with this current civil rights movement, we are complicating the way that we are looking at race. Um, there are, like you had said earlier, there are a lot of organizations that are um, popping up or getting more traction because of the movement um, that are talking 
so intersectionally about um, experiences of discrimination and racism. And, you know, when we try to fit everything into this very neat box of what we think discrimination or racism should be, um, it ends up only serving like the hand of white supremacy, right? Because it, it gaslights every other experience. It, it implies that if your experience of discrimination or racism doesn't match, you know, map onto this idea, um, then it is not valid. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways for the AFIMAD community, we fall into that box of like, oh, like these experiences don't neatly map onto, you know, this box. It, does that mean that they're invalid? And it also hurts like tremendously and it's tr like incredibly traumatic experiences and all of that. And that tension between like trying to kind of like wade through that is incredibly difficult and hard, but I think is something really important for us as a society to recognize that like discrimination and racism is not going to look like the same thing um, person to person, experience to experience and creating and holding space to acknowledge that and to validate the experiences of um, all you know marginalized identities I think is incredibly important instead of setting up kind of a conversation that leads into oppression or Olympics, right? Like, which again, it just is only another kind of aspect of white supremacy that is seeking to like pit us against each other. Um, when at the end of the day, like, like you were saying, um, anti-Asian sentiment is fueled by anti-blackness. Like it, it, the two things are, you know, like, for black liberation to happen that only means that for asian communities like, like that's like a good thing for asian communities because when black lives matter all lives matter right which you know we see that all around the world like all in these instagram posts but it's true like if the system is only concerned about one specific group um essentially like white folks then it's not serving the rest of the groups but if we are able to create a system um, that is empowering those who have been the most marginalized of us for centuries, um, then that means that all people are going to kind of like benefit, um, if that makes sense. I don't know if I said that very well, but um, I, I mean, I, all of that to say like, everything all of the experiences that marginalized folks you know are have to endure like those negative experiences are in like this history of anti-black racism and colorism in this country um and you know we should be able to kind of hold space for what that racism looks like in all of its really evil different spectrums mm. and also in fighting and being in solidarity with black and brown communities or black communities, especially right now, uh, we also hear the word performative allyship, virtue signaling. And even though our own intents are meant for the good purposes, the impact can speak otherwise. So what do we do to think about what does allyship mean for us? What does it mean in a way that does not actively or indirectly harm uh, communities who are on immediate threat at, at this point? So what 
could we do to be better with recognizing uh, where our allyship is? Where should we be putting our resources? Where sh I mean, I know I'm asking, I don't want to seem like I'm asking you for the answer for that, but I think it's just an open dialogue um, as a way to, you know, think about these topics on performative allyship and virtue signaling. What does that mean to us as a community who's also dealt with oppression? Yeah, I mean, I think that well, it's really hard right now because I think that I feel it a lot. There's a lot of pressure to always post the right graphic on Instagram at every moment as soon as something happens, right? Like, and there's a lot of power in that. The more people that are talking about, um, I mean, for instance, what happened a couple days ago, um, the shooting of James Blake in Kenosha, um, like it's important that there is a nationwide discussion and acknowledgement of those atrocities because you know the flip side is hiding it under the rug and then hiding it under the rug does not mean progress it means like the opposite and so i think it's really important and at the same time it does feel like a lot of pressure um that you know like if you don't post the right thing then you're not doing enough or you're not you know being a true ally and i think that's wrong right like allyship looks like so many different things and i think at its core it's about creating space for marginalized voices to be heard to feel safe um to feel empowered um and using whatever privileges that you have to kind of like create that space and um you know i think performative allyship is when you are truly, I mean, like, it's kind of an easy example when you're just kind of like posting, 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 but not truly doing the work on yourself, because it's like these battles that we're fighting, it, it's coming from interpersonal relationships more than it's coming from like posting on Instagram. Or I donated um, $10, you know, when you're kind of like giving dollar yeah. amounts or, you know, I know this is, this will get very tricky, but when you start seeing people posing, and protests without considering oh, yeah. that there's safety issues. I mean, we're, we've all been guilty of it in the past, but I think when we're seeing the increased police militarization that's happening, lives are at stake here. I mean, this is not yeah. a time to just show that you're present and be like and smiling, doing selfies. This is a very critical, urgent time yeah. that we're in. So that's another example of performative yeah. allyship. I also think that, you know, another example of performative allyship is when non-Black folks continually share, you know, images, incredibly traumatic images of um, Black bodies being, you know, violently treated, if not, right. mur like, you know, when um, at the beginning of the George Floyd protests, I remember seeing that video of um, George Floyd, you know, like the the actual moments of his death being shared so widely across social media and it's like i mean taking it like personally you know if i were to see people posting ad nauseum images of a south asian body being brutalized um you know around the internet like I do not like I don't know how I would function like it's so traumatic enough mm -hmm. seeing images such as George Floyd's um, or hearing the stories of Breonna Taylor um, and you know to have to live that to have to be you know in a body that is constantly you know like 
terrified of the fucking police of like going outside of just like everything like to see that constantly go around the internet um feels really cruel um and i think that it it does feel um I, i do think that that is performative because at the end of the day like you're only re traumatizing people you're not actually um creating a conversation um and there was a conversation about this, uh, about uh, trans, especially black and brown trans uh, women who also like are being murdered in mass throughout this country. And uh, recently there was uh, an in- a horrific instance in Los Angeles, I believe. And uh, a video was going around um, of you know some trans women who were being brutalized essentially and it was one of those things where it's like, okay, why is it that these images of black and brown bodies are basically being shared in mass when they're being brutalized or horrifically kind of like violently treated and not when, not just like in normal time celebrations of, you know, black and brown bodies. Um, and I think that that's something that we should, you know, all reckon with, like, how are we using images to drive stories? Like, you know, representation goes two ways. If we're only seeing like these really catastrophic images of marginalized communities, then that creates this idea, you know, it doesn't create like good perceptions, right? Like, and when especially you don't have the flip side like the balance to it where we're seeing like black and brown bodies being celebrated like i mean like you think about um black queerness right and there aren't very many not even just black queerness i think that like queer poc stories itself queer poc love and joy is not not really shown a lot like we don't see it a lot in like mainstream media but what we do see a lot is like these really horrible stories of like our black and brown trans siblings and queer siblings being like hurt. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I haven't, I didn't really think about that until really, you know, recently when I saw some folks posting about it. Um, I believe Laverne Cox had posted a really, it was a repost from someone who I'm forgetting their name, um, but it was talking about you know, sharing these really violent images and what that means. Um, and I, I really started thinking about that because, you know, your gut reaction to a horrific event is to show people, here, look how horrific it is. You have to care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like the flip side is that there are negative consequences when that that is, you know, like the predominant imaging that you're seeing shared across like every single platform. But, you know, it's like an onslaught of seeing the same kind of horrific thing. Um, So, I I mean, I think all of that to say when we're talking about allyship, I think there is so much thought that we all have to put into what that means. And it's really trying, you know, like a, a close friend of mine has taught me a lot about compassion and kindness and really, you know, trying to understand the the experiences of people around you and trying to connect with that. And I think grounding your allyship in empathy is one of the most effective ways to be an ally. 
because then you're able to just understand you're coming at it from kindness instead of like, oh, I need to be a part of, like, I need to not get yelled at on Instagram, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, when I see Black people getting murdered, I refuse to watch any harm that's done to Black and Brown community folks because coming from a family of the Vietnam War and the Khmer Rouge, where I see skulls, you know, blasted, especially like around the anniversary times. It's very triggering to me. Like I refuse to watch the killing fields to this day. I have a very strong sensitivity to violence. And even with the anti-Asian racism, when you see videos of an older Asian woman getting attacked, not only can I not watch the video, but I just cannot bring myself to hear stories. I know that there was a podcast that was doing work to bring these stories in. And I, and I love that podcast a lot and I don't you know, blame them by any means for having people share their stories. I just could not bring myself to even hear those stories because it feels like I'm going back to my own childhood years. I feel like I go back in time when I remembered where my own foreignness, uh, where I get reminded of my own foreignness, where I struggle to find my own belonging. So it brings you, brings me back to a past that has always been very harmful And so as you just uh, mentioned, to share that, especially without consent and without regarding how your Black friends and colleagues and acquaintances feel about this, I mean, this is something that we really need to start addressing and to also hold ourselves accountable when we're sharing harm, when we're sharing violence that has been done because you know, it does trigger these communities who are continuing to face it without any sort of solution to end it. I mean, we haven't even reached a solution to end it to begin with uh, in America. I don't think America's ever had a solution to end uh, violent oppressions from indigenous folks to black folks to Asian folks and Latinx folks and what have you. So um, I think that this is, uh, um, thank you so much for sharing that part of the this important dialogue because as we are continuing to find ways to be supportive, we also have to address the consequential ways of how we harm uh, communities. Yeah. We are hoping when we are building solidarity. So I think it's important to, to address these mistakes and to work better towards them and to also hold space for those that would really want to share and to talk and to um, consider the experiences that they're going through so um, yeah I I mean I something that you just said I think that is really really important for our Afimad community to understand is like we don't want to be like we don't fucking want to endure racism or xenophobia so why is it that you know it can sometimes be really difficult to convince our community to defend like our black siblings against the very, you know, very similar types of racism that we don't want to endure. And like, I think that that's something that's really important. Like exactly what you said, like you don't want to see images of the war because of how traumatizing that is. And like, you don't want to be known as you don't want your identity so tied to this like very traumatic experience in the ways that like I don't want like what earlier this summer there was an Indian restaurant in New Mexico that was like 
completely vandalized, torn to shreds um, with like white supremacist statements on the wall and mm. a lot of, um, you know, like Hindu iconography and statues were like vandalized. And I remember seeing that and just, it felt like a gut punch because it was like, people are sharing this all over the place. And it's like, I'm all I'm seeing is just images of my identity and my, you know, like culture, um, you know, being treated as just a casualty in um, like a r racist attack instead of being, you know, treated in like all of their glory and celebrated in the ways that like, you know, we celebrate other things. Um, and so I think that for our community, like I, I think that there's like this very base level of like, I don't know, I think especially for like, you know, our immigrant elders being like, y'all came to this country and like, I'm sure you endured like a lot more racism than our current generation, you know, a lot more um, different and maybe more violent um, types of racism than our current generation is facing. So, and you hated that. You didn't want to do that. Like that was horrible. That was like dehumanizing. And that is something that our Black siblings have been facing for centuries. So if we're able to understand it from that context, I think like, I mean, that's the whole point of empathy, right? Where it's just like, we wouldn't want that to happen to us. And we so desperately want people to stand up for us as well. Like that, you know, with anti-Asian racism, like during COVID, we're constantly pleading with people to stop calling it the Chinese virus. We're constantly pleading for people to like understand us. And that's something that like black communities have been pleading for for so long. And so that's like a shared, like a shared understanding that I think should only make us realize the importance of standing together and, and having that solidarity with each other. Mm. And more recently, uh, you just got accepted into law school. Uh, you are now living in Philadelphia and you're practicing or studying uh, policies on trans LGBTQ inclusion in sports. So I would like to get your own perspective about what that experience has been like to go into law school and why do you see that there is a need to, well, there's always going to be a need anytime there's LGBTQ issues at play. But when in sports, we often don't talk about that because uh, when I think of sports, it's predominantly male oriented most of the money is always into male sports, right? And, but we don't hear enough, or we hear very little about LGBTQ plus athletes in sports. And I wanted to get your take on, on what are you looking to challenge and what are you looking to discover through this work in, uh, in law school? Yeah, so I mean, for me, being an athlete was, a really saving identity for me throughout my entire life and even to this day because you know in the United States the way that we look at athletes or the identity of an athlete is kind of like you know like these godlike people who can do these extraordinary feats of athleticism um, and there's this inherent respect that comes along with the identity of being an athlete and so for me growing up in a really conservative predominantly white town like I got to hide behind that identity to the point where people knew and respected me because of, you know, like my golf, being a golfer and being really good at a sport. And because they were focusing on that, it helped me kind of 
almost, it was a shield against racism, against feeling the fact that I was a brown girl. Um, it's very queer. Like if you looked at me, I had this, you know, the classic Asian bowl cut, bowl cut wearing like, you know, cargo shorts and like all of that stuff. But being an athlete really kind of shielded me from a lot of discrimination that um, I think I otherwise would have endured really head on. Um, and, you know, it, it's incredible. I think it's really hard to quantify how much that means. And so for me, like, it's really important that young queer folks have spaces like that. I'm like not saying everybody should play sports, but in the same way that theater can be like a saving community for queer folks, like in, in finding, um, you know, other people just like them, you know, finding this thing that they're excited about, an activity that's kind of can be an escape that, you know, can build mastery of, of certain talents. Um, I think sports can also be that. Um, and, you know, we still have a lot, like you were just saying, like sports are still predominantly focused on essentially basketball and football in this country. And because of that, you know, there's so many, um, issues and so many athletes that are not given um, or afforded the opportunities that they truly deserve. Um, and then it also kind of allows for a lot of discriminatory attitudes to blossom because the spotlight is not necessarily on, you know, sports that aren't football or basketball or I guess baseball to a certain extent. Um, and so, I, I mean, for me, like I endured when I was playing professionally, I endured a lot of homophobia and, and racism and xenophobia. And something that like really stood out to me was the fact that there really aren't any kind of like frameworks in place to foster inclusion. Like there's no real protections for um, queer folks, let alone queer POC, let alone just people of color, right? And especially like non-male people of color. Um, and kind of that was something that was really frustrating and I knew was indicative of the larger way that society looks at those marginalized identities um, because in a lot of ways sports are just like this boiled down image of society right like you have teams that are this is going to be a horrible analogy because I haven't mm. really thought of it but in a lot of ways you kind of like see the core aspects of humanity and like these competitive like just um you know, feats of athleticism. And um, I think that it can create this really, and we're seeing it create this space where um, we can have these incredible conversations about race, about sexual orientation, about gender um, that we have seen from folks like Colin Kaepernick um, that we're seeing right now, right? There are, what was it? Like there are five NBA teams that are sitting out game five in protest of um, the James Blake shooting and like the fact that these athletes are using their um, position to advocate for social change I think is like immensely powerful and it's not something to overlook so you know in addition to the empowerment of the athlete identity and um, the platform that athletes have at any level to impact kind of like social change um, you know I I saw how important it is to uh, and I mean, for me personally, I was like, I want to be able to play a sport where I don't feel so ostracized, where I can just play the sport and not have to worry about my identities. Um, so yeah, like that's 
kind of like the big reason why I came to law school is because I, I wanted to create that um, for all like LGBTQ athletes, especially like queer people of color. Um, and then it so happens that, um, you know, over the past few years, we are seeing, I think currently we have 27 pieces of legislation um, that are transphobic bills tied to sports arguments. So essentially what's happening is, um, you know, the Trump administration has figured out that it's a really easy way to be transphobic in a very kind of like understandable way to say that trans folks and trans inclusion in sports are an affront to women um, and they're a threat. And so therefore we should not include trans folks in sports and have thus created these 27 pieces of transphobic legislation um, tied to exclusion in sports um, that, you know, create precedent to exclude trans folks from, you know, even more facets of life. Um, so, you know, specifically, I think about HB 500 in Idaho, uh, which thankfully recently um, a judge kind of like blocked uh, that, uh, that law, even though it was signed into law, um, the ACLU is currently, um, you know, fighting a battle against them in Hecox v. Little. Um, but I think it's really important to look at that law because what it says is that if any, um, it's targeted at youth athletes, and it says that um, if any athlete's gender identity is in question, no guidelines as to what in question means, but if any athlete's identity, gender identity is in question, um, then, you know, a school administrator can submit, subject them to invasive examinations to confirm their biological sex before they're allowed to compete on a certain gender's team. And so you can imagine that, well, one, is blatantly transphobic. Two, I would... I mean, I would kind of like make a general statement of saying that like, we all were experimenting with gender and just our identities when mm -hmm. we're kids. Like we looked so awkward in so many different ways. And I think about myself with my bowl cut and how like, you know, I wore cargo sh shorts and looked like a, like a little boy for basically most of my childhood. And how if I was that now in Idaho, I would be targeted by that bill. And And what it's doing is it's restricting gender expression it's restricting like the ability of kids to just be kids and like to play the sport that they love um and instead it's like subjecting them to like these violent um invasive examinations um and you know for me like that is indicative not only of the way that we view trans and queer folks in the united states or kind of more widely um but it also kind of shows this move this like steady move to we're starting with sports, then we're going to move to healthcare and like restrict access um, to trans, you know, queer and trans folks restrict their access to healthcare. Um, and, you know, this just, you know, steady 20, like I said, 27 bills, uh, pieces of mm -hmm. legislation that are in essentially villainizing trans folks for what? Um, and so for me, the fact that it's tied into sports, like it feels, obviously it feels very personal, but it's something that I think is, I mean, to put it bluntly, like really fucked up because like all kids should deserve the opportunity to play or do the thing that they want to do, 
regardless of their identity because like I said earlier like being an athlete can be like a, a really saving identity like sports can teach kids so much like it's taught me so much and it's it's been like such a huge I mean like I I would say that it did save my life and it gave me the confidence to be able to explore my identity and and create an identity and and, and all of those things and when we take those opportunities whether it be sports or theater or other extracurricular activities when we take those opportunities away from especially marginalized youth of marginalized identities then we're taking away opportunities for them to feel empowered to find those senses of communities to kind of feel joy and feel loved in all the ways that like we should be able to feel love and joy um so i mean you know it's, it's my hope with my jd like i'll have two more years left um but i, I really hope to kind of use both my my personal experiences in playing sports and being a professional athlete um, with this legal education to not only, um, you know, fight for inclusive policies within sports and, um, you know, hopefully do some litigation, because I, I do love to argue, um, <laughs> uh, litigation defending, you know, um, LGBT issues in athletics, um, but also more widely, like, you know, LGBTQ issues arise everywhere. Um, and I mean, like something else that I'm really interested in is Title VII. And we just got that recent decision that says that like queer and trans folks are um, protected under Title VII. Um, so against uh, discrimination within employment settings, which is really amazing. And there's like Very a lot critical. of work to be done with that too, because um, it doesn't necessarily talk about a disparate impact or like what is that di discrimination. And so like you said, there's always going to be um, things to work on. And I just really hope to kind of play, um, you know, a small part in continuing to fight for LGBTQ e equality and inclusion and celebration. I gotta say thank you so much for sharing your insight and your experiences in law school and also as an athlete and 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 also for really opening up this dialogue that doesn't always get talked about in the LGBTQ community in regards to sports and and why we see these barriers are in place and how and I think about this in our and just what you just said how many generations of LGBTQ athletes have we lost because of the homophobia, transphobia that has happened. Because oftentimes when we think of sports, it's so cis heteronormative. And one of the worst places for a queer trans athlete is in the locker room. And mm -hmm. so when we hear about these stories, how many of these athletes or how many of these folks could have been athletes had none of these homophobia, transphobic laws and, uh, and people who are targeting those community members, how many could, have had, could it have saved, right? And, and I think about where this uh, narrative continues to shift, especially as we are, as you are uncovering a lot of the, the loopholes that have happened or, you know, I think I'm kind of going in circles here because it's it's such a profound, introspective look 
in what is going on in the sports world and I'm glad that you are taking the initiative to challenge what's currently uh, the status quo. And I think that is a, a very important part is not only just for your own fight, but to find other folks to help fight, whether it's former athletes, current athletes, and experienced uh, legal figures to join in on this important work. So keep up the great work. I know I was kind of rambling on because I had no idea where I was going to go with this this, uh, conversation, but uh, I want to wrap things up. And one of the last questions I do want to ask you is, if you had to go back in time to talk to your 21-year-old baby queer self, what would you tell her? Oh, uh, I have no idea. Um, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like something that was really important then was knowing that like people do want to hear and see you. Um, and that like you will find those people. Um, I, I think that like when we use the narrative of it, it gets better. Um, like it, it creates a lot of pressure to constantly like be better in a certain way. Um, and I think or that- wait for things to get better while yeah. you're still struggling and suffering. And I think that, you know, what actually happens is that our relationship to things change um, and we, we gain tools and perspectives to understand ourselves and understand our situations a little bit better. I think that's really beautiful and wonderful. Um, but I think that something that probably I would have wanted to hear is that like people do see you and people do want to know you. Um, and that like, it, it's not, you know, like, the community or the family you like the found family that you're going to have is never going to look like what you think it's going to look like but that doesn't make it any more meaningful or any less meaningful or impactful or important um and and just trying you know it's like a lesson that i'm still trying to learn is to try to trust folks and trust them to kind of like let them in um so yeah i think that's what i would say yeah thank you so much for sharing your journey, the current work that you're doing. And before I wrap things up, where can we follow your work? And uh, what else would you like to announce? Yeah, um, so you can follow uh, Queer Asian Social Club on Instagram at Queer Asian Social Club, very easy. Um, I mean, you can find me at Maya S. Reddy uh, on Instagram as well. Um, And those are kind of like the two places. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, you know, we're going to have this uh, zine launch kind of happening around when this episode comes out. So that I'll be really excited. Um, and we're always, I mean, anybody who wants to be involved and contribute or, you know, be involved in any way at all, um, you know, we would love to hear from you and we'd love to, you know, work with you, amplify your voices, your work, um, you know, anything of help that we can be. Um, yeah yeah thank you and you know it's been such a joy knowing you for the past year and a half and i'm so glad that we are having this conversation and just just really been so honored to have been on your podcast and to uh watch the work of queer asian social club continue to give space to so many lgbtq plus opimed folks i mean 
I recommend to anyone to check them out, follow their Instagram, Facebook. I, I am a huge fan of your work and what you're doing. So best wishes to you and your staff on continuing this uh, or amplifying this uh, critical work and really best of luck to you for the rest of 2020. And I cannot wait to see what comes to fruition come next year and the years after. So we'll be in touch and I hope that everyone also gets to follow up on Maya's journey and the Queer Asian Social Club's journey as well. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. It's always a blast getting to talk to you. And I'm Thank also you. so excited to see uh, all of all of the things that Bond Me Chronicles has to come and also kind of following all of the incredible things that you're doing. Uh, thank you so much. Likewise to you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bun Me Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunme underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm-hmm.